Wessex LMCs supporting you and your practice. Welcome to the podcast of the Practice Manager webinar run on Wednesday the 21st of October. This is a little bit of a thought for the day that we put up on the screen for those joining the webinar and I thought I would share with you on the audio podcast too. If you had £86,400 in your bank account and someone stole £10, would you be so upset that you would throw away the remaining £86,390 just to get back at them? Of course not. You have 86,400 seconds in your day. Why let someone's 10 seconds of negativity take away your remaining 86,390 seconds? Let go and move on. Just something to think about. So first of all, I'll hand over to Nigel. Thank you. Thank you, Louise. Um, Tracy, I've got six things I want to cover today, so uh, it'll be brief, but not that brief. So I'm going to talk a bit about COVID, a bit about the COVID virtual ward, the COVID vaccination, uh, flu vaccination, the new to partnership and the primary care fellowship. So let's start off with COVID. So locally, we've reached now the peak that we were in in wave one. So although uh, if you look on the map of the UK, we're in the lowest areas in the country, um, the COVID is spreading and it's coming to us and coming to us relatively fast. We certainly seem to be doubling our numbers about every seven days at the moment. So if you look at the number that are being diagnosed, that has increased significantly. But then, of course, we are, despite all the problems with test and testing and testing and tracing, we are testing far more people now than we did in wave one. Uh, what's also interesting is that um, the death rate hasn't increased in the same percentage of the people that are diagnosing. And there may be multiple reasons for that. But clearly, if you look at um, lots of the data on those that are most adversely affected, it's particularly those over 65 or those under 65 with other conditions. So, you know, things like um, long-term conditions, multiple morbidity, um, listed, which you're aware. So what is also clear on the latest data, um, it's um, we're seeing an increasing number of older patients being infected. So the risk of somebody in their 20s um, of really serious outcomes of COVID is still relatively small and you're talking about point something of a percent whereas if you're 65 with a long-term condition <clears throat> and you catch COVID the risk of um, serious consequences are uh, much higher. If you look at the infection rate around the country um, Nottingham is amongst the highest at 762 per 100,000. The national average yesterday was 147 per 100,000. Portsmouth is the sort of hot spot in Wessex, which is 67, and the Isle of Wight is the lowest at 14. So they've got far less spread over on the island than other areas. If you look on a map of the south of England, it's not surprising. The real hot spots are Bath, Exeter and Bristol, which are all university towns. Despite Southampton and Portsmouth and Winchester having universities, they don't seem to be as adversely affected as some of the other areas. Although if you look across Hampshire and the Isle of Wight, an area of, of Portsmouth called Fratton is quite um, high. 
So the local planning assumption is that the R number is currently 1.2 and may increase, and that the peak that we're going to get is probably going to happen in December, January time. We're planning to put all sorts of things in place by early to mid-November, but it may be a little while after that before um, it happens. And the peak is predicted to be at least two to three times what we are in wave one. So, you know, we're coming into the winter months and I don't need to tell you that normally that comes with lots of people with viral infections, um, people presenting with bacterial infections, uh, pyrexias, etc. So if you add that into COVID that's coming, that's going to be a really challenging time. Also, what we've learned from wave one is that we can't put all routine care on hold, um, stop doing all the long-term condition management, because there is good evidence that patients have come to harm and irreversible harm because they're not getting access to care. Um, because you know, hospitals and general practice were asked to divert all their resources onto managing COVID. So going forward, we're going to have this conundrum and challenge of managing the COVID patients, um, however that may be, but also trying to manage the routine non-COVID work, the long-term conditions, screening and immunizations. So as I said on these calls before, part of that is we need to expand the workforce over the winter months, and that's a, um, an ongoing discussion we're having with each um, local system. There is particular concerns about cardiovascular disease and um, cancers, because they are two of the ones that are presenting. And we know that if you take just blood pressure, for example, that people who don't have their blood pressure adequately controlled are much more likely to have a myocardial infarction or a stroke. Um, if I then move on to the COVID virtual ward, and hopefully um, all your GPs will have watched the LMC webinar, and if they haven't, make them sit down and watch it. Uh, and I hope most of the practice managers have, because it, you, you will gain a, a, an understanding from what you're organising in your practice and across your area. So the idea of the virtual COVID ward was um, developed from actually before the first phase of COVID, which looked at remote monitoring of patients and then identifying the ones that might deteriorate it. And if you build that into the COVID, if you take patients who are at greatest risk, so again, you know, we're looking particularly at those over 65 or under 65 who are from ethnic minorities, have got active cancer, diabetes, chronic lung disease, learning disabilities, um, shielded patients potentially. There is a risk in those patients that they deteriorate, but what they do is they deteriorate without knowing they've deteriorated in that they, um, COVID attacks their lungs and they get what we call silent hypoxia. So if they develop silent hypoxia, if you get them up and do a what's called a 40-step test, they may become quite breathless, but sitting down in front of their TV, they might not feel too bad. What the oxygen saturation does if you remotely monitor them is detect those people that are desaturating and got early hypoxia. So the theory is, and the theory is backed up by evidence, that if you can look at the high-risk patients, use the remote monitoring, the oxygen saturations for 14 days, then you'll pick up people at an early stage where you can intervene, whether that might be admission or monitor them more closely. And with the treatments that we've got available now, the outcomes of those patients are far better. So if you look at somebody with an oxygen saturation of 96% who may be uh, under 60, 
their risk of mortality is, as I said before, you know, point zero something percent. If you're 65 or over, or you've got one of these long-term conditions, and your oxygen saturation drops to 94%, you've got something like a 12% mortality. If it goes below 93%, it's something like 28%. So the COVID wards are something that are, or the virtual COVID wards will be mandated, I'm pretty certain, across the whole of um, England. Um, there's meetings going on nationally at the moment in all our areas. So that's Hampshire and the Isle of Wight, um, Dorset and BSW have had meetings in the last 24, 48 hours, and the LMC has been involved in those, about establishing the virtual wards to look at what scale we put them in, what needs to be done. Um, they are ordering thousands of pulse oximeters, which will come into the CCGs, and we'll agree a way forward about how these uh, COVID wards will be managed and monitored going forward. I don't honestly believe you can do it at individual practice level. They need to be available seven days a week, um, they also need a degree of consistency. There are different models already in existence in North Hampshire versus um, Southampton versus the Isle of Wight versus Dorset. And it's about getting a consistency of approach and there may be deliver different delivery models, but the documentation and the pathways to admit and escalate care will be consistent across the whole area. So that's talking about COVID. Um, the COVID vaccination, I've read a lot of um, interesting information um, in the media, some of which is accurate, some of which is um, not quite so accurate. So there are um, a number of vaccines being developed across the world. We're part of the Oxford vaccine trial locally. Um, it is likely <clears throat> that there will be vaccines that become available just before Christmas or just after Christmas, but they will be in small quantities until the mass production of them um, develops over the next um, short while. So you will know the Joint uh, Committee of Vaccination and Immunisation have um, given a schedule of who the priority groups are, uh, so who will be done first and how that will be rolled out over a period of probably anything up to six months. The vaccines will need two doses, 28 days apart, and it will be sort of care homes, the elderly, frontline healthcare workers, and then going down the various uh, age groups. The, um, one of the big things that's, that's discussed at the moment is the logistics of delivering it. And I think it's pretty clear that general practice can't possibly deliver um, two vaccines to all the people that are gonna require it. I think it will make general practice fall over. So there are discussions about having some roving vaccinators um, who will go around potentially to housebound. There are talk about mass vaccination centres and they've done various trials, uh, big centres where mobile people could go to. And there's a nervousness about including general practice in the programme simply because of the workload in general practice. A personal view which is shared by many LMCs across the country is if you're looking to those that deliver mass vaccination on a regular basis, there is only one provider that does that and it's called general practice. So to my mind, it would be um, rather foolhardy to try and do a mass vaccination programme where general practice doesn't play a role in it. Certainly don't believe we could do all of it, but if there were mass vaccination centres and roving um, vaccination for the housebound, certainly general practice could play a role in that. But to do that, it would need resource. Um, if you look at you know, GP returners, increasers, 
nurses, if we're going to expand the workforce to be able to deliver the vaccination, we need resources to do it. So that's the COVID vaccination. Flu vaccination, um, I think Michelle and others are going to cover it later. All I would just say is a really big pat on the back to general practice. Um, I've just seen the latest figures, which haven't been verified and can't be published because they're not verified. But generally across the whole of Wessex, we're significantly ahead where we have been in previous years. So a really big effort from general practice and well done to everybody. Um, all I can say is keep going, keep vaccinating. I know there's a challenge with the supply and I'll leave that to others to uh, come back to later. The final thing I just want to talk about is the workforce. You know, we are going through a challenging time, but we do need to keep recruiting people and we do need to sort of look to the future. So I'd really encourage um, practice managers um, to talk to their practices and PCNs. We need to make maximum use of the additional roles money and get all those people recruited into those roles. We are pushing on your behalf for greater flexibility in the use of the funding, but Treasury has pretty well tied down the NHS on how it can use that money. We're also pushing really hard to get the new to partnership scheme out and the GP fellowship scheme uh, and the GP mentors so that we can recruit and retain more GPs as well as others. And remember the primary care fellowship scheme also involves newly qualified nurses. And we are working with Surrey Sussex LMCs to develop a programme of education and training for the uh, new to partnership GPs, which will look at things like HR, um, legal stuff, finance, leadership, contracting, uh, um, performance stuff. Uh, but also we'll be looking to develop some of that stuff that will be available to those who might want it, but aren't new to partnership. So we did do a... Um, scheme before um, for those that um, were looking to go into partnership um, but people who are already in partnership joined those courses and found them really valuable so part of what we'll be looking to develop as an LMC forward is support packages and uh, education and training events to do that. So that's um, uh, most of what I had to say. Um, three quick things. One is uh, just a polite reminder uh, remember that although there's 310 points protected in QOF, you do need to do the quality improvement activities. They are simplified, but learning disability is really, really important. There is some evidence that in the COVID, the first wave, 70% of those with learning disabilities who died had preventable causes. So there will be quite a lot of pressure um, about the learning disabilities annual checks. And I would just encourage people to make sure they do those before they get swamped with COVID and that we have 100% um, coverage. The second is about NHS 111st. So across the whole of England, there is this pre-booking system for people to go into A&E rather than everybody turn up at A&E. The pilot we've got in Portsmouth has worked relatively well, um, that patients are being directed from 111st through the clinical assessment service into the ambulatory care unit, into community clinics, not that many are being referred back to general practice. But this is gonna be rolled out in your area shortly, and it's something that as an LMC, we're keeping a really close eye on, because what we don't want is just to move the deck chairs on the Titanic and move people from A&E, so they hit their four hour trolley weight and just move them straight into general practice when that isn't appropriate. And the final thing um, is about PPE. Um, I know there's been lots of complaints in the past, they've largely resolved, 
but and I hope 100% of practices are registered with the PPE portal. Nationally, they say there's only 80%. Our evidence is that very few practices aren't registered locally. Um, uh, Department of Health has set up a small group um, to look at the PPE issues in terms of what we think as frontline users of PPE, rather than four layers of reporting through the CCG, NHS England, region, nationally to the Department of Health. Um, and for my sins, I'm sitting on that group with about four LMC secretaries from around the country. So if you are having problems with PPE, um, please let me know. I don't particularly want you know every single problem you've got, but if you can't get a box of gloves, let me know. But if you're having problems in ordering quantities, the shortage of stuff that you can't get a hold of, go through your normal routes, but let me know because I'll feed that back into the national team. Thanks, Louise. I'll shut up then. Thanks, Marjorie. There's a couple of questions that are coming for you just in relation to what you've just been saying. We aren't going to be having to work over the Christmas bank holidays, are we? I think that was a complete reaction to you saying December is going to be sort of the big um, pandemic hitting. So there's a, a worry that people aren't even going to get Christmas off. Look, I think nobody can tell you what's going to happen. Um, the predictions in the first wave didn't come to fruition. Um, we don't know. I, I, I sincerely hope not, because I quite like um, to see my grandson and granddaughter over Christmas. But if we get three times the rate of COVID that we've got now, um, you know, we won't be going anywhere and we might even be in lockdown. So at this point in time, I can't tell you. I hope not. I hope the measures they're putting in at the moment will form a break on the spread of COVID and that will start falling off. But, um, you know, the pandemic is a national emergency and, and who knows what will happen. Uh, I'm sure as we did at Easter, um, we may need to do that. But I think we did learn quite a lot about from Easter and some of the bank holidays because we put capacity in that wasn't really needed. And I think we need to do as much as we can at system level rather than insist that practice is open. So um, I won't guarantee the answer is no, but I would um, hope that that wouldn't be the case. Okay, and a couple of workforce questions, please, Nigel. We really need or would like some more MSK capacity via our PCN ARV, but are only allowed one whole time equivalent. We've got lots of cash left. Why is it being restricted? Because they aren't enough um, physiotherapists who are first point of contact MSK. So the risk is that you'll take people out of the community providers and there won't be enough there. So that's why they've said just one per PCN in the first wave. Uh, it is worth talking to your CCG about it because some have gone to the private sector and secured some additional service in that way. But there are complications and costs to that. Also, remember that, you know, we're now in month seven. Um, a normal recruitment process may take you three months by the time somebody's given notice. So if you want to recruit people to start in April next year, you need to start the recruitment process, you know, over the next few weeks rather than wait till the 1st of April to do it. OK, thank you. And also just a warning there about being careful about on costs and reimbursement for your um, pharmacists and full time equivalents with the PCNs. But just keep a look, look, look at the small print, which I know is something we were discussing in the office this morning. Well, um, let's just, can I just be really clear about that? Yeah. There? So um, the way NHS England have worked it is they've looked at the competency framework of those individuals and what they expect them to deliver in general practice. The challenge then is they've they've tried to be helpful by putting agenda for change funding in it, but most practices and PCNs don't offer agenda for change. 
And some of the um, people who come forward looking at those posts are looking at salaries which are up at the top end of the scale um, in terms of where it's benchmarked. And you need to remember that you've got to add the on costs um, to look at if you're going to get 100% of the post funded. Some PCNs have recruited people who are on a higher pay level because they've got more skills, more experience, et cetera. And I would just uh, you know, politely remind people that these additional roles are there to help general practice with their workload. So I would still use the rule 70-30. So 70% of their time should be taking work off your clinicians, 30% delivering stuff for the PCM. If they're spending all their time doing PCM work, then the funding isn't doing what it was intended to do. But, you know, if you go back and very few of you will have been here pre-2004, but we used to have practice staff budgets, which reimbursed 70% of a person's salary. And what I would just encourage practices or PCNs to look at, there are other funding streams coming. So you've got the £1.50, which I know has been spent about 10 times over, but you've got IIF money, the Impact and Investment Fund, there's some... Um, development come funding coming down, PCN development fund, there's other um, factors you might do that you could supplement um, those salaries if you wanted to get somebody with more experience or who works at a higher level. Also, you know, if these people are really valuable to your practices, then then potentially the practice could look at their workforce as a whole and potentially you, you know, invest in those people. Uh, but that's very much down to individual practices and their PCNs to make that decision. Yeah, thank you, Nigel. And um, I don't quite understand one of the questions sent in. We might need a clarification from the panel or from the person sending it in. So we were informed previously that there was still 66% COVID funding, but our CTG are not allowing any more reimbursement. So the um, there was so during COVID, the NHS England um, put into local systems money to reimburse additional costs with COVID, which was mainly aimed at secondary care. For primary care, there was a talk about a national COVID fund, but um, when the um, powers to be, and I, you know, this is treasury and government, um, looked at general practice, um, they felt that general practice had diverted all its resources to delivering COVID-based care. So um, didn't require some additional funding. There was um, representation made uh, about the additional costs that practices incurred. So it wasn't just about staff. So our PCNs, our, sorry, our CCGs locally were reimbursing on the basis that it get refunded nationally for COVID-related expenses that were approved. So a number of things went through in terms of, you know, looking at PPE, looking at um, some additional staff costs, you know, the weekends that people ended up having to work. That reimbursement ended on the 31st of July. So the position um, then became that any additional funding needed to come out of local systems. So CCGs are no longer enabled to claim money from the national team. And the same is true for hospitals. They are given some funding to meet the costs of additional um, activity uh, as they are required to get up to 100% of diagnostics and outpatients and um, <clears throat> sort their elective care lists out. 
but they're not give, being given extra COVID funding as such. They've got to consume that within their own organisations. So going forward, as an LMC, we've argued in each of our systems that general practice will fall over unless we get additional funding to increase the capacity um, that is required in general practice. So the PPE is now being fully funded. So you shouldn't be buying any PPE yourself. If you do, um, I would encourage you to use the um, ordering things that are in place. Um, they are looking still at other things they should do. So in Hampshire, there's an agreement that there's 2.8 million pounds, which is going to fund the hot sites over the winter. That's not national funding. That's funding that the system has agreed to find to use in general practice over the winter months. And other places are looking at similar things to create the hot sites um, and how we might manage it. I still um, <clears throat> think there's more that needs to be done. And it, for example, the virtual COVID wards, uh, when they're implemented, will need some resource. And I'm hoping that that will be funded nationally. Okay, final question, Nigel. There's just a little bit of concern that the PCNs, if they're able to pay um, gender for change pay scales, that's going to destabilise practice staff because the staff are just going to jump ship to the PCNs. Um, well, one might think the staff the PCNs are employing are different from the staff the practices are employing, but um, I, I don't disagree. When we had this discussion, we agreed that the funding should go into those reimbursement levels, um, which gave people the ability for Agenda for Change, but there is no requirement for the PCNs to pay Agenda for Change. Okay, thank you, Nigel. Um, Carol, can I um, pass over to you now, please? Okay, thank you. Uh, You'd be pleased to hear mine are all very short, almost one-liners. So a couple of things that we talked about in the previous um, webinars, one was about the um, GP appointment um, data. And I think, you know, a lot of you have recognised that um, a lot of your appointments are probably not being captured in your appointment books. And um, and also people were saying, well, we've written something that, that we take the data out of our um, clinical systems rather than the appointment book. So we've had some information just recently, end of last week, NHS England and the BMA have agreed a definition of what a, um, uh, an appointment actually is. And they're going to be working with the system suppliers on a technical system specific guidance. So that's due out shortly. And once we've had that, that should hopefully help everybody to, um, to be able to make sure that those definitions and that uh, that data is is properly extracted so that it will show um, how busy how, uh, general practice is in the same way that the hospitals do that at the moment. Second thing I just wanted to mention to you is um, a lot of practices have been in touch with us about um, student nurses being placed in their practices um, and they have to sign something to say that those student nurses are indemnified. Um, I think this is a new departure because everybody always thought that they were indemnified by the university that they work with. Um, that indemnification has actually passed over, but it is through CNSG. So you really don't need to worry about it. So if you're asked by local university to sign something that says, yes, nurse indemnified, yes, they are whilst they're with you. And we've got all the information on that. If anybody wants chapter and verse, we, we've, we've got it. Third one, I just wanted to give you um, a bit of a, a, a heads up. The wonderful CQC and not letting us um, 
just, you know, relax out of their uh, clutches at the moment. And apparently they're going to be starting a review on DNAR processes across the whole systems. So I'm just warning you that if you, you know, where you've got patients that have got a DNAR in place, make sure that it's written up, you've got protocols, you've got processes in place. We'll get some more information on that, no doubt, but this was just a heads up on the CQC um, training thing last week. Um, I think that was all I wanted to cover really for now. So I'm gonna pass over to Michelle, Hi, um, I'm just going to do a bit of an update on flu. So people will be aware of the letter that was recently sent out to access the additional vaccines. Um, it was really just to highlight there's been a further version issued. There was a correction um, that needed to be made. It mentioned about that practices couldn't exceed more than 10% of their registered population. And in another place, I think it was the FAQs, it said it was 10% of the eligible population. Just to confirm, it is 10% of the registered population. And there is a new version that's been released on the 9th of October and I think is available on our website if you need to have a look at that. Going on really around additional vaccines, we've had an increasing number of practices contact us because in the letter it stated that from this Monday, potentially there was ordering or delivery of the additional ATIV. And that when you contact Sequiris, they, they are saying that actually they are not allowed to share the order form with you um, because they're waiting approval from DHSC. We have raised this nationally um, and via public health, and we await uh, an update on this. I get it's really frustrating, but um, we're waiting an update as to what, what's holding it all up. And as soon as we've got it, we'll share it with you. The other update on the additional vaccines was to say that we have had confirmation that there is enough vaccine to the, of the additional vaccines to vaccinate all of the eligible cohorts and also a percentage of the 50 to 64 year olds. Just to say we are waiting on the guidance for the 50 to 64 year olds, which we believe will be out shortly. Um, what shortly means, who knows? It's a, there should be a new definition, I think, for that for the NHS, but it is imminent. Um, so we will wait and see when that comes out. Um, what else did I want to update on? Uh, also within the letter, there are levels that you can order from depending on different suppliers. So it was just to say, if you are a practice who wants to order less than the minimum order, so I think one is 150, if you wanted to order just 50, then you need to contact Public Health and they are able um, to potentially approve that you order below the minimum or over the maximum. And also it's useful just to be aware that there is additional workforce. I think we had some information via gov.uk that there's additional workforce being trying to be identified around COVID vaccine and flu vaccine, and that there's some new regulations or laws going to be passed that will allow more healthcare workers to be able to administer the vaccines. We await further detail on that. And as soon as it's available, um, we will share that with you. And then finally, we are getting, again, increasing number of queries around vaccine orders for next year. Um, it's that time of year when practices will put their order in for the following season. We, our advice hasn't changed. We would suggest just pause with that. Don't, don't do any ordering until you've got the national direction that we await. And I think that was it. Lovely. Thank you, Michelle. I think, Lisa, you were going to update on a few bits, please. I just had one. Thanks, Louise. It was just very briefly um, just to confirm that the complaints return KO41B has been suspended. So there will be no collection in 2000 for this for this year. 
The idea is to streamline the data. So the next collection is likely to be May, June 2021, so next year. Perfect. Thank you very much. Um, Cara, I think you had another couple of bits you wanted to mention. Yeah, just a couple. I think you'll, you'll remember we talked last week, um, cheered you all up and then knocked you all down about e-consult, switching it off and, and things like this. And we know a lot of you have made contact with e-consult to say we want to be switched off. We understand that there was given, they were given a little bit of uh, misleading um information by one of our lovely CCGs, but who shall remain nameless, but they were told that it needed CCG approval, which of course it doesn't because your contract with the CCG is eight to 6.30 and we want to switch it off after that and at weekends. Um, however, we, and, and Dawn in particular, has been talking to some lovely people at eConsult and various other places. And um, we are, in the midst of organizing with them for them to come onto this webinar to talk on three particular streams. They reckon that they've got some good management processes that, that, that they've been working on so that if you didn't switch off, you can actually manage the, the workload better. I'm, I'm yet to be convinced, but it'll be good to hear them. Why not? The other one is we've talked to them about, can it be capped? So that if you get to a certain level in an evening or at the weekend, can it then, you know, reroute that patient somewhere else or do something different? And the third stream is, of course, switching off out of hours and at weekends. So we've asked them to come and talk to us about that and talk to you about it directly um, so that you can you can make your um, uh, your decision. Um, and the last thing I wanted to talk to you about, and please don't take this as as a as a. Um, that I'm encouraging you to leave because I'm not. But what I am going to say is if you are leaving, but you'd still like to do a bit of work and help out because you're very experienced and you've been doing this for a while, we are a little bit short of practice manager caretakers and practice manager project managers. So this isn't the PM supporter role. That, that's a different thing. But, you know, we often get calls from practices or CCG saying, do you know anybody that might be able to help? here for two months, three months, maybe a couple of days a week, or somebody that can sit alongside our new practice manager just for a little while because they've come from outside um, of, of the NHS and that type of thing. So if if you are interested, if, if you are going to be going um, in the next six, seven months, whatever, then please do, do come and contact us because uh, we'd love to hear from you. Thanks, Carol. Um, just a, one question, I think, for you, Michelle, um, at the moment. Um, thank you for the flu update. You stated there is sufficient vaccine for a percentage of the 50 to 64-year-olds to be vaccinated. I watched this with interest because how do we choose if it's only a, only a small percentage? Good question. Um, and we await the detail. I'm looking at Nigel still. He might have a bit more than I do, but... I don't think you'll choose. I think what they're going to do... Well, I know what they're going to do, which is... We need to vaccinate the over 65s, the under 65s at risk, and then there will be the others. And the others, once it's allowed to be vaccinated, I suspect it'll be on a first come, first serve basis. It won't be on uh, a case of, you know, who are your priorities going to be? They will tell you it's at the at risk groups that perhaps don't come into the um, the paid ones, but, you know, you, you will just be able to give it to anybody who's between 50 and 65. Um, 
but I don't think they're going to give you instructions to say it has to be X or Y. Just a comment about, thank you, Nigel. Just a comment about e-consults just come in. We do not wish to shut off e-consults at weekends. Can we continue even if others switch off? I'm, yeah. I'm guessing this is going to be a practice um, yeah. decision. It's a practice. Yeah. You can do it as a practice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This was only really to help those that, that, that were saying that they were coming in to hundreds of emails, mainly on a Monday morning. Um, a lot of practices are quite right. They've rescheduled their, their, their workforce so that some are working directly on that and don't see face-to-face, etc., etc. So it's, it's, it's whatever's best for the practice so that you can manage your capacity and you can manage your workforce without falling over. So you make your own decision. That, that's right, isn't it, Nigel? Yes, Carol. I'm sure he said yes, yes. Um, <laughs> I mean, any advice on comms for practices? The problem is that when we run out of vaccines, the practice that takes the blame for those not vaccinated, what, what can the practices say to their patients? I think you just need to be really clear. You know, the government is dictating the groups that we vaccinate and, um, you know, we, we, we have supplies coming in, um, but... I mean, you probably don't want to say this to patients, but, you know, obviously practices ordered this last spring when we didn't know something called a COVID epidemic was going to happen. Um, so um, I, I think you need to be clear with the patients, but I think I wouldn't give, I wouldn't put too much detail because every time, every line you write will be dissected by them and interpreted and shared and you'll find it will spread like wildfire. So, I mean, what I would just is, probably reiterate the same message, which is, you know, flu vaccination is a high priority every year. This year it is even more important because of the uh, potential risk of getting COVID as well as flu. Therefore, we are vaccinating people in terms of the priority groups, which are these. Um, we are doing it on a timetable over the next few weeks as we get the vaccine become, that becomes available. And I would keep the message fairly simple. Like that. Um, Public Public Health England have actually issued some comms, um, including a leaflet for patients. It's not great, but there are questions like, why do I have to wait for my flu vac and various things like that. So it's it's worth looking on the Public Health England website for their for what they've put out. Dare I say, normally the practice managers have got a better message than some of the stuff we <laughs> get nationally. No doubt about that. So if any of you have got some messages you think are good, could you share them? Um, and we'll share them with all all practices. It's often yeah. often we find the most um, fruitful way of doing it. Yeah, and I, no, think just, and I think just to be clear that actually we're still waiting on the fifty to sixty four year old information. That that I believe the DES will just be updated, and that will give us the detail. But at this moment in time, practices are not vaccinating the fifty to sixty four year old yet. I think. Yeah, and I think when it comes, the only detail will be you can go ahead and vaccinate them now and you'll be paid for it. Do you? You don't think they'll start with the older age group and move down? No? I don't, I don't know, but I doubt it. No, Too complicated. It just reminded me the flu leaflet is actually on our website. We've, we've, we've posted it there, so the, the one from Public Health um, England, so it's there if anybody wants it. Um, IIF money, we were pleased to receive the 27 pence, which helped immensely, but that's now gone. Any news on additional IIF money, which was speculated a few months ago? 
Um, there is still ongoing discussion about it. If you look at the, they did release some revised requirements for IF, which is on the um, PCNs achieving certain outcomes. And there, if you look at the prescribing stuff, there is quite a big overlap with the QOF stuff as well. So I, I can't guarantee you'll get more advance on the IAF money. They, you know, they particularly want certain things to be done at um, PCN level. I have to say, we don't help ourselves though, because um, at the end of last year, there were millions of pounds unspent of the £1.50 at PCN level across the country. There was PCN development fund funds that were distributed to PCNs and unspent so you know there was all the concern about having to pay tax do you distribute it what that means but it also sent the message back up the line there was quite a lot of money sitting in pcns which were unspent so i would just encourage pcns to commit the money that they've got you know this isn't about making profit this is about helping you and your practices as a pcn level but also looking at developing services that will be there for your communities and that's what the IA. The IIF money can only be spent if it comes out um, in the future on staff or services. You can't use it for anything else. So um, you can watch this space, but I would just look at funding you've got at the moment and just use what you can. Okay, thank you, Nigel. And one for you, probably, Michelle. Um, coding for the um, 50 to 64-year-olds, is that 90x4 dot, or do we not know yet? I think it is. And... The reason I'm hesitating is that there are a number of discussions happening about how practices differentiate these group, this cohort, the 50 to 64 cohort, mainly because you, I'm just, there was a question I think on, on there, and I think it got answered around funding and that practices for the additional cohort will get 10 pounds and six pence. They can't claim the dispensing fee because you've not bought the stock and that there is an issue in that when you're recording this information, it might put it through to your FP34D that process so we're just looking at that so I think it is but we will clarify sorry that was a long way of saying that wasn't it that's perfect no that was great thank you Michelle um that's all the questions I think that's all from our webinar today thank you thank you panel thank you Lisa Carol Nigel Dawn and Michelle and just to remind you that the um next week is um Nigel's news webinar at one o'clock on Wednesday then our next practice manager webinar is going to be on the 11th of November it will be the same link you've used today for the zoom link but we will send out a reminder as we normally do so thank you very much everybody and um, we'll see you soon thank you Wessex LMCs, supporting you and your practice.